You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop, the podcast helping water leaders to discover solutions and drive change. I'm the host, Travis Loop. This episode is part of a series, The PFAS Puzzle, Lessons from a Contaminated Cape Fear. The forever chemicals were dumped in the North Carolina River for nearly 40 years before being discovered. The series explores how a community responds when it is the epicenter of PFAS pollution. This episode is about the science. Dr. Detlef Kanapi of North Carolina State University is one of the leading scientists who found PFAS in the river and has conducted continued research on its presence. In this episode, Detlef discusses discovering the chemicals, identifying sources of the pollution, and sharing information with government regulators and utilities. He explains how PFAS levels have been lowered, shares the lessons he learned about research, and offers advice for communities with concerns about the chemicals. Before starting the conversation, I want to thank the organizations that have made this series on PFAS possible, Ultra, Black & Veatch, and PFAScoms.com. Waterloop is a nonprofit that depends on this support. I'll take the next few minutes to tell you about these companies and appreciate if you let them know you heard about them on Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. This episode is sponsored by Ultra. When it comes to PFAS, there are hundreds to thousands of contaminated sites across the U.S. and Canada. Military bases, airports, landfills, and industrial facilities are all known locations where the risk of having PFAS is very high. Ultra experts have been performing risk assessments and implementing cleanup solutions for PFAS for nearly 40 years, building a reputation as innovators along the way. The Ultra team is helping pave the way for better outcomes with proven innovations like its patented PFAS technology and first-of-its-kind continuous process. This drive for innovation, combined with its comprehensive suite of solutions and local regulatory knowledge, means customers have the right team to combat their PFAS challenges. Visit logistech.com forward slash PFAS hyphen solutions. This episode is sponsored by Black & Veatch. Black & Veatch is proud to provide the planning, design, and construction services for Cape Fear Public Utility Authority's new granular activated carbon facility that successfully removes PFAS from the Wilmington community's drinking water. Black & Veatch helps organizations across the country and around the world to address their PFAS challenges providing end-to-end -end consulting, engineering, and construction services to meet each community's unique needs. From applied research to executed projects, Black & Veatch is at the forefront of innovative and effective PFAS treatment solutions, trusted by key trade and research organizations, such as the American Water Works Association, the Water Environment Federation, and the Society of American Military Engineers, to mitigate the impacts of PFAS in our environment, critical infrastructure, and communities. To learn more, visit bv.com forward slash PFAS. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. This episode is sponsored by PFAScoms.com. PFAS is shaking public confidence in our nation's drinking water. And now that EPA is requiring utilities to test for PFAS, newsmaking findings are guaranteed. 
Your utility must become and stay the trusted go-to source for information about PFAS in your community. PFAScoms.com is here to help. Their communication experts protect you from threats to your reputation when discoveries are made. PFAScoms.com provides proactive public information plans as well as 24-7 emergency support. Visit PFAScoms.com today to set up your free initial consultation. That's PFAScoms.com. You're in the water loop. I want to just start real basic uh, for people. Could you explain what the, this class of chemicals, forever chemicals, PFAS, what, what are these and where, how are they part of our lives? How have they gotten into our lives? Yeah, so PFAS stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances and it's a class of you know, over 10,000 synthetic organic compounds. And you know they have many useful properties. So, and one of the most common uses of PFAS has been in firefighting foams. And so the military and also civilian airports use those. And through firefighting training activities, a lot of those have entered the environment. Uh, but then PFAS are also um, you know uh, fluoropolymers like Teflon. And um, you know Teflon and Gore-Tex and, and other fluoropolymers have been very useful in everyday life. So um, you know whether it's the nonstick cookware that's in practically every house in the world, and um, uh, you know Gore-Tex and other water repellent type of uh, products are very useful for outdoor <laughs> enthusiasts, right? So there's a bit of an irony there. Um, you know, PFAS are used in all sorts of products that we use in daily life, in our daily lives, whether that's dental floss or uh, treatments for carpets or upholstery or, you know, the car seats, uh, uh, like the, some windshield wiper fluids, you know, and it's, we, we often don't even know in which products they are, right? And maybe we buy a piece of clothing and it's treated with uh, stain repellent, a water repellent kind of treatment. So um, they make our lives uh, easier. Um, and at the same time, you know, the, the production uh, of th these compounds um, has led to lots of pollution around the world. Um, yeah, so um, there's probably a lot of PFAS that we are not even aware of yet. Uh, and also, they're probably in many consumer products that we purchase and we don't even know they're in there. And so people talk about it being just ubiquitous in the environment now, right? It's like everywhere you could go, in the rain even. Right. I've seen those studies. Right, exactly. There was a paper that just got published that showed you know, PFAS is in rain, even in very remote areas on the globe. And there's sometimes, uh, there's been a lot of news about PFAS in water, right? And in drinking water and waterways. Um, one of the missing parts of that story is that's just kind of one path of exposure. People don't really realize about the consumer goods, the household products, and these other ways that they're really, the vast majority of exposure usually comes from. Would that be fair to say? Right. I, you know, and water can be a really important exposure pathway if 
PFAS levels in water are elevated, but there are also many water supplies in, in the country that have very, very low levels of PFAS in them. And in that case, often the main exposure pathway may be the indoor environment or, or food. And, and you know, that is something that I think needs greater awareness um, because people tie PFAS a lot to the drinking water, but that is really only one part of the exposure. So here in, in North Carolina, uh, the Cape Fear River is, is a major waterway. Could you talk about the discovery of, of PFAS and some members of that that family in the Cape Fear River, when this was discovered, what was discovered? And really the first study that was done on PFAS occurrence in the Cape Fear River was uh, published in 2007 and was uh, you know, a study led by two US EPA scientists, uh, Andy Lindstrom and Mark Streiner. And they showed you know, really high levels of what we call also sometimes the legacy PFAS in the Cape Fear River watershed. At the time, they were interested in understanding whether the DuPont facility at Fayetteville Works was contributing a lot of PFOA to the river, uh, which is a substance that's used or was used to uh, make Teflon. And, and PFOA was being made at that time in the early 2000s at Fayetteville Works. Um, but what they found was that you know, while PFAS levels uh, were elevated uh, throughout the watershed, they found that the, the Fayetteville Works facility really wasn't contributing uh, a very large amount of PFOA to, to the river and that PFOA and other PFAS already were present well upstream of that facility. And I started working on PFAS then in about 2010, and, and I started talking with Mark and Andy, the two EPA scientists, and um, you know, they invited students of my group into their lab, and we, you know, we learned how to measure PFAS in water, and initially we focused really on water treatment technologies without really thinking about the Cape Fear River in particular. And, um, but while we were working with Mark and Andy, you know, we learned that um, PFOA production had been phased out uh, around 2009, 2010, and that this new chemical, Gen X, was replacing PFOA as a new processing aid to make Teflon. So then, you know, we were curious, is Gen X in the river? And Mark Streiner developed an analytical method for, for Gen X, and then one of my students collected a lot of samples in the, in the entire watershed, and um, we analyzed those samples for, for Gen X, and, and then found that just downstream of the Fayetteville Works facility, we found high levels of Gen X in the water. And when was, when was that, and what were those levels? So the first samples were collected in 2012 and 2013, and you know, on average we found levels of about 630 nanograms per liter Gen X uh, at the drinking water intake uh, for Wilmington, Brunswick County, and 
parts of Pender County. And so what, what happened? I know that the story really broke publicly in July of 2017. What, what happened in those years in between as far as the research and the data and information? Yeah, that, that's a, a good question. Because I'm just curious that's, how a community unearths this problem, right, right collectively, yeah. So some context here, you know, when, when we found the 600 some nanograms per liter Gen X in the river, um, you know, the next question was, is it also in the drinking water? So, you know, we worked with the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority. They al allowed us to collect samples through their entire treatment plan. And so we found in 2014 that, that the treatment plant was not able to remove Gen X from the water. Um, in the meantime, Mark Streiner had also found that apart from Gen X, there were a lot of other PFAS in the water, other fluorethers, we call them. So a, a new subclass of PFAS about which we essentially knew nothing. So he really discovered you know, chemical structures that had never been you know, really discussed in the literature before. These are, this is because the main ones were being phased out and companies were kind of trying to manufacture alternatives to those, is that? Well, initially that's maybe what we thought, but later it turned out these are all byproducts of a manufacturing process that where they're making building blocks for floor polymers. So, so they're intentionally making a product to then make these floor polymers, but um, in the process, some of these byproducts are generated and were emitted into the air and into the water. And you know, what we learned was that these you know, levels, we couldn't quantify exactly how much was there, but the response we saw in the mass spectrometer was much, much higher than that of Gen X. You know, so we were also trying to figure out you know, how much of these other compounds was there. And that really took much longer than we had hoped. And, and so, you know, the other sort of important piece of that story is that <coughs> in, in uh, 2013, 2014, when we discovered the Gen X levels, um, the US EPA health advisory level for PFOS and PFOA, if you summed those two up, was uh, 600 nanograms per liter. And you know, we found Gen X at around 630 nanograms per liter in the drinking water source. When we went sampling at the drinking water treatment plant, it was in the 400 range. So at the time, it was pretty difficult to convince, I think, a regulator that this completely unknown chemical at a level that was similar to the health advisory level at the time was something to be super worried about. And um, well, that changed in 2017 when, uh, 2016, I'm sorry, when EPA uh, lowered the health advisory level for PFOA and PFOS, the sum of those two, to 70 nanograms per liter. So at that point, we decided, well, we're, we have to push this paper out and you know, now 600 nanograms per liter of Gen X, right? Okay. Roughly tenfold yeah. the, the uh, new health advisory level. And we 
decided, well, let's try to publish these data, even though we cannot say what the levels of the other PFAS are. We can just say they're much higher, but we don't know what the levels are. And so that paper did get published, and, and I think that's always an important step in the process, you know, that a peer-reviewed publication can be relied upon as a way of informing, you know, the, the regulators that something is amiss. So I worked at EPA in DC and in the water office and was in the meetings about the health advisories getting lowered to 70, we call it parts per trillion. Um, and then in July of 2017, I happened to move to Wilmington, North Carolina, the same month the story came out. So this is just, it's so fascinating to get the inside look at how it has all unfolded here. It was pretty challenging, right? And, and looking back, it seems maybe so obvious, you know, why didn't we worry about this earlier, right? But, but if you're talking about completely unknown chemicals and given our current regulatory system, it was, was a challenging sort of task to really convince people something is, is not right. And, and really the paper alone didn't make that impact, right? It was, and I, I tried to dis, you know, share the paper with state regulators, with people at EPA, with drinking water providers. And you know, I think you know, the, the response in, in general was maybe still one of, we don't know what to do with this given our current regulatory construct. And like you said, the lack of, uh, of just knowledge and studies on those particular class of, those particular types of the chemicals, including health impacts, right? It's a exactly. lot unknown. Exactly. So and this gets maybe into a question of just how we deal with unregulated contaminants in general, right? And we, if it's not regulated, a drinking water providers not violating a regulation, a discharger may not even violate a regulation, and there's some debate over that. But, um, you know, we, I think we just need to change in this case to something that I call, or what is generally called the, the precautionary principle, right? We, we, we shouldn't expose people to, you know, unknown chemicals and, and, and pretend that that's okay just because they are not regulated. In the years from you know, 2017 till now, uh, there's maybe many parts to this question, what other you know, science has been done? What other research has been done? What do we know about the, the levels of, of PFAS in the river? How have they trended? Just kind of what's that picture look like? Well, so a lot of effort has been spent on, on developing the analytical methods further, right? And when we published the paper, we couldn't tell people what the levels were for a lot of the other PFAS uh, that were um, discovered, you know, these fluorethers. So, um, you know, in part, um, we, actually got help from Chemours because they shared analytical standards with EPA and with our lab. And just for the, for the conversation, for the record here, Chemours uh, is what, it used to be a DuPont facility right. and they spun off Chemours as a subsidiary or whatever and so that is now 
that, that Fayetteville facility you're, you're referring to. Yeah, back you know, when we initially started with DuPont, uh, who was the manufacturer for all these fluorochemicals, and then in 2015 they spun that off uh, and the new company is called Chemours. And, and so Chemours now is the, the main operator at the Fayetteville Works site and, and responsible for the uh, discharge permits. So yeah, initially we then you know, obtained these analytical standards from Chemours, which you know, was a, a first step. You know, and we, we couldn't fully validate the purity of these standards, but you know, we were able to now calibrate our instruments and come up with estimates of what the PFAS levels were. And so in the end, um, you know, in 2019, we published a paper where we analyzed archived samples uh, that we had collected in the Cape Fear River Basin in 2015 and 2016. And the PFAS levels uh, at the drinking water intake in Wilmington were over 100,000 nanograms per liter PFAS. And pretty much all of those were these new fluorethers that were uh, you know, discharged from the Fayetteville work site. You know, when the story broke in 2017, um, very quickly, you know, through community pressure and also regulatory pressure, uh, Chemours uh, went to Wilmington and, you know, a lot of things came to light that we didn't really fully understand uh, before then. And so one was that they said that Gen X had been, you know, discharged from that facility since 1980. And, you know, we really didn't fully understand that at first because, uh, you know, we thought Gen X was, you know, introduced as a replacement for PFOA in 2009. And so it turned out that Gen X was just also another byproduct in their manufacturing process. So the Gen X was a by, actually a lot of times a byproduct, not even intentionally created really, just something that happens through chemistry, yes, huh? Yes. Wow. And that happened, you know, then for almost 40 years, right? These, the, the, uh, the community had been exposed to Gen X for that long. So that, I think, was really quite shocking. Um, uh, the other thing that happened at that meeting was that Chemours uh, offered to uh, stop discharging processed wastewater into the Cape Fear River. Uh, starting like a week later and and so one of my students then tracked the PFAS levels in the river and you know they came down you know very quickly after you know that initial effort uh, but there were some other byproducts that were discovered at during that time that stayed high and and so you know Kimors and decided to collect additional process wastewaters and you know then around October or so of that year there was another pretty sizable drop in PFAS levels you know and so now we're at you know some PFAS levels that are uh, you know in the 
you know, sometimes below 100 nanograms per liter, sometimes several hundred nanograms per liter still. It depends a lot on how much water is in the river, how much dilution there is. And not all of that is tied to the Comoros facility. There's legacy pollution. There's those sources upstream, like you mentioned, in the river, right? That's certainly part of it, but there's still, you know, the majority of PFAS that are in the Wilmington drinking water intake are still you know, associated with the Fayetteville work site. And a lot of that is, is, you know, highly contaminated groundwater that's still seeping into the river. And, you know, one of the ongoing efforts right now is to remediate that. Uh, so they're building this large retaining wall and then, you know, all that water that gets collected behind that wall will get treated through granular activated carbon before it gets then sent to the river. So that should, again, lead to a pretty sizable drop in, in PFAS levels in the river. What can you say about the kind of environmental impacts of, of these chemicals? Obviously, there's the public health piece, which we'll cover kind of separately. But what, what can you say about the environmental side? And, and then what's the prognosis, I guess? You just touched on the expected drop. But what else would you say about the legacy contamination, how long this stuff sticks around, you know, what's in the riverbed and, and so forth. Yeah, these are still a lot of research questions. You know, we have a project right now to look at PFAS levels in sediment, for example, to see how important, um, you know, the sediment could be as a, a source, you know, if during a storm event, for example, the sediments get stirred up. Um, and environmental impacts, you know, there, there are ongoing studies looking at alligators and fish that suggest, you know, that there's lots of bioaccumulation of certain PFAS in, in wildlife and that may also lead to adverse, you know, health effects for, you know, aquatic life. Um, you know, we still need to better understand bioaccumulation in the aquatic food web, which is also an ongoing project in our Superfund Research Center. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, questions, I would say, still on, you know, what does all this mean in terms of past exposures that were very high and what it means for, you know, the prognosis in terms of the restoration of the river. Could you talk a little bit about how the you know, greater North Carolina scientific research community has kind of come together, collaborated, uh, you know, over these years, especially the past five years since this all became public. You know, what, what's been the response there and, and how have, have uh, researchers and scientists kind of started working together? Yeah, and, and I think recognizing the, the, the scale of the pollution and the many different ways the pollution might have impacted the environment and people, you know, that really necessitated to, you know, build large research teams and get a lot of, you know, different people with different, uh, you know, research expertises involved. And, and so, you know, we started out at NC State here. We have a, called a center called the Center for Human Health and the Environment. So I started working with an epidemiologist, Jane Hoppen, and, and other researchers here at NC State, like Scott Belcher on the 
who's doing the, the alligator and fish studies and, and really start to ask questions about you know, the human and environmental health impacts. Um, and as a result of these early collaborations, we then established a, a Superfund Research Center that's funded through NIEHS, where we have four projects, uh, one that's focusing on human exposure, one on toxicology, one on bioaccumulation in the aquatic food web, and then one on remediation that, that I'm leading. Um, but then on top of that, you know, the, the North Carolina legislature also uh, mandated that, you know, universities across the state uh, address, you know, knowledge gaps related to PFAS and that led to the establishment of the NCPFAS testing network uh, that's led through the North Carolina Policy Collaboratory and um, you know, one of the maybe most visible uh, efforts of the PFAS testing network is, uh, has been to sample all municipal and county water supplies in the state for, for PFAS. So there's 376 of them. So like NC State and Duke University shared that effort. And um, you know, we've completed two rounds of sampling now. and um, you know, that ha had also some, some you know, very immediate impacts. You know, for example, we found one small community, Maysville in North Carolina, that probably would have never been tested, would have had not been for this program. And um, you know, we found high levels of PFAS from firefighting foam in the municipal well. And within a month, they were able to change to an alternative water source and now have you know, water that's cleaner, at least from a PFAS perspective. Yeah. I don't know of another state that has such uh, intense research and science going on around PFAS. I mean, this is really, really something what's happening here in North Carolina, right? Well, out of necessity, perhaps. And there are, there are other states that have been very active. You know, I think Michigan and New Hampshire are very good examples where uh, a lot of similar efforts have been done on a statewide level. Uh, trying to assess, you know, how much PFAS uh, is impacting drinking water supplies around the state. Uh, so we have a little bit different model. It's more focused on, you know, university uh, activities also. But, you know, we, we're one of the leaders in terms of understanding PFAS impacts on drinking water, for example, in the country. What about you as a, as a scientist? Uh, you know, what, what lessons have you learned? What's this, you know, journey been like? Um, you know, how, how's it impacted you as a, as a scientist? I'm uh, maybe most excited about is to, to have been able to take the research from the lab really to the people and to see that you know, the research that we do at a university can make a difference, you know, so I think seeing that is, is something that's, you know, fulfilling in a way that we see that, you know, the water quality really has gotten a lot better in the Cape Fear River, um, that drinking water providers are building more advanced treatment facilities to also assure that you know the quality of drinking water in the future is is safer uh, for you know a, a 
many, many people in the Cape Fear River watershed. There's over a million people that uh, rely on the Cape Fear River as the drinking water source. So, and that's, that's one, and it's, it's been tough, uh, you know, in terms of uh, just keeping up with, with everything. And, and uh, um, there's, you know, it's, it's exciting, and at the same time, it's some, some days are a bit daunting. Yeah, yeah, it's such a, just an emerging area. A lot of people probably thought that, you know, this, this uh, you know, whether, whether the, Initial findings that I communicated to regulators and drinking water providers, maybe a lot of people thought, oh, this will come and go, and we, maybe we don't need to do anything, right? And, and I feel, you know, having found maybe, like, building a stakeholder group of people to keep persisting uh, that something is wrong here and and um but doing it in a you know, in a way that's not necessarily creating a lot of fear and panic might might have been a way to have people keep listening to it um so i don't know like i you know i'm i'm i i, I was not trained to do that right so i think there was a lot of um, maybe intuition involved and also just how do I approach this? How, how can I make this stick? How, how can I get people to care about this? Unfortunately, even though the situation in the Cape Fear River is pretty acute, if you will, there's so many communities across the country and around the world really dealing with PFAS pollution that might not be at the state of knowledge and response that has happened here in the Cape Fear. What would be your advice to those communities, especially the, you know, the scientists, the researchers that are in those communities? What, what would be your advice to them? How should they approach it? I think building uh, a stakeholder group is, is really important and, and understanding what's important to people is important. Um, also, you know, are we as researchers asking the questions the community cares about? I think overall PFAS are, are getting a lot of attention now, you know, both at the state and federal level in, in many places around the country, but probably not all places. Um, I think if people in, in a community are concerned, I think approaching universities can be uh, a, a good way to get heard. Um, I think sometimes regulators are not the most, you know, uh, uh, are maybe not the best listeners. Uh, and, and, you know, are, I find regulators are very much thinking within their box, right? Like what what can we do with the current set of regulations and stepping outside of that box is not very comfortable for regulators but for a researcher i think that, you know I, <laughs> I i'm not tied to these constructs right so so i think my recommendation to people would be you know try to see whether you can get traction at at, at a university where researchers will um, hopefully be better listeners and 
but I'm then also finding the resources to get started is hard, you know, so I think, um, um, you know, just going to the university and just expecting things will just happen from one day to the next is, is something that's not reasonable. You know, a, a researcher may have to first get financial support and, and, you know, not every university may have all the equipment needed to do that, so. It goes back to what you said before about being persistent, right? right. That's, that's an overall frame when you're taking on PFAS. For people in impacted communities, I think it's also important to, you know, to have a certain level of persistence and, and try to not give up, you know, try, try to talk to many different people and see whether somebody will listen yeah last question i wanted to ask you and this picks up i heard you talk about this at a community meeting in wilmington recently um and i thought it was terrific perspective um, maybe not expected from a you know an engineer scientist person but you kind of talked about what people should do to evaluate their PFAS risk or minimize their PFAS risk or put this into context, you know? Uh, so it was almost like a little, you know, advice to another human, another citizen out there. Could you, could you kind of just comment on that? What, what people should do when they're in a community like Wilmington? And the first step I would say is try to understand your drinking water, you know, engage with the drinking water provider. Um, and you know understand whether drinking water is an important source of PFAS and if that is an important source then you know um, one option that that one can do is uh, you know rely on, on home filters to to filter the PFAS out of the water. Well Detlef this was an extremely informative conversation um, gives me even more to think about <laughs> as a resident myself of Wilmington but thank you so much I really appreciate it. You're in the water loop. Thank you for listening to the podcast and a special thanks to this episode's sponsors Black and Veatch, Ultra and PFAScoms.com for the latest episodes, to connect on social media, and to sign up for email updates, please visit waterloop.org.